Welcome to the Creative Plan Podcast Network. Join us as we share our favorite RPGs, one-shot games, tabletop games, reviews of items, and convention panels, and other exciting things that we run into from time to time. Sit back and enjoy the show. Hi, this is Kelly, a.k.a. Trixie from Ragnarok and Roll, a sign to Ragnarok story, and Tilda Wimblewick from D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition. First off, I would just like to say thank you to everyone for listening to our varied adventures, as well as for rating us on iTunes and RPGpodcast.com. If you haven't rated us yet, we would greatly appreciate it if you could. And if you're looking for more ways to support our efforts, we are now on Patreon, a great site where you can help us continue making more podcasts, as well as some special surprises for our patrons. If you can, please look us up at www.patreon.com cppn. Every little bit helps. And again, thank you for listening. Hey guys, Jim here with Creative Plan Podcast Network. I've got somebody here that I wanted to introduce you all to and a great new game book that he's working on. I've got Justin Oldham, and your game book, AC, or After Collapse, is a post-apocalyptic role-playing game, and take it from there. Yes, this project, all told, has been about 36 years in the making. Uh, the, the the first time I recall having the idea goes way back, uh, probably before some of your listeners were even born. But uh, the, the very short history on this is when I when I saw first edition Gamma World, the idea first began to germinate in my mind. And to tell you the actual truth of it. The reason the game is called AC After Collapse is like on page three of the first edition Gamma World book, right there at the top of the page is Arbor Class, parentheses, AC. And as soon as I saw that, it just lodged in my brain, and and the rest, as they say, is history. Hey, the best inspiration comes that way. All of a sudden, you get a concept, and it just crawls through the back of the head and takes time to germinate. That is pretty much it. Now, this is, in in every traditional sense, a tabletop role-playing game. When, when Gamma World first came out in late 1978, the average person did not have a desktop computer. And so when you were flipping through that book, you were seeing the game designer's best guess as to what a future desktop computer would be. So here today in the year 2019, as we're extrapolating into the far distant future, what is artificial intelligence? What do microelectronics look like? In certain respects, we are doing the same sort of guesswork that the past masters have have done. The difference is we know more now than they do back then. It's, it's always fun busting out some of the old game books from back in the day and seeing which ones hold up to the test of time and which ones don't. Like when you're looking at some of your game books and you're like, hmm, a wristwatch nowadays can do exactly what that giant thing could do, you know? Yeah, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much the case. So here we are today. We have self-driving cars, even though they're still in their infancy. The idea exists. The the technology is there. And even though for the better part of a hundred years, military robots have been the stuff of science fiction, but we're starting to see machines now. They're out there on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
give it 10 more years, and yes, they will be large enough to tear you limb from limb. Yeah, that's that's when you watch the videos, like when they show the test robots where they're beating them up, making them walk through the obstacle course. We're pretty much there. You've got bomb disposal units all over the place. Drones are a super popular thing down here in Arizona, so it's not too far away. Very true. So let's uh, let's let's get right to the nugget of something that really matters to me. I am a life. I'm a lifelong fan of. Uh, post-apocalyptic anything and everything. My living memory goes back to approximately 1970, so I'm telling you something about my age. And back in the back in the latter decades of the Cold War, everybody was concerned about America versus the Soviet Union. The the main threat of the day was nuclear war. As we transition through the 1980s, we start adding new things to the list so that by the time we reach the year 2000, it's nuclear war, it's biological weapons, and and there's a whole umbrella of things under the term weapon of mass destruction that we now have to factor in to our apocalyptic calculations. So when you are reading the backstory in the basic rule book for AC After Collapse, one of the tag phrases you see referred to in there is a collapse of many causes. Mm-hmm. And, and because in all likelihood, whatever, uh, whatever brings about the end of world civilization is not going to be just one thing. It's not going to be because, you know, so-and-so's grandma unplugged their toaster. It's going to be, it's going to be 10 or 20 things. And three, five, 10 decades after the collapse, the, the knowledge of those things will be lost to the sands of time. So it will be very challenging for post-collapse people to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And in any given scenario, in every, any given campaign, your characters could be standing right there within arm's reach of the truth, and they would never know it. It's like in those those apocalyptic movies when they walk by and you see the sign laying on the ground that they should have spotted, but they didn't. And it's like, huh, the people say this land is cursed because everything withers and dies. And then you see the radioactive sign laying in the mud. Yes, yes, absolutely. The, 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 the guy who cannot read. What does it what what does minefield mean? <laughs> it means mind the field. <laughs> So, yes. Now, obviously, we're having some fun with this, and I'm all for post-apocalyptic humor. I've got a whole bunch of books and movies on my shelf over here that, especially in the 1980s, there was a tendency to play with it, to make something of a joke out of it. Because when you can make something funny, you take the negativity away from it. And, but that's that, you know, that, the, the era we live in right now, there is a certain hesitancy to, to make fun of those things. But I just want to assure people that I have built that humor into the basic rules of this product. Mm-hmm. And it, it goes into crazy detail. I mean, one of the nice things that I like about, you know, after collapses is the character generation. It's not set by classes. It's by what you want to be able to do as a character. Yes, and I have to tell you that if there is any one single thing that has surprised me the most, it's what players have done with these character generation rules. 
I, I, people have emailed me with character concepts that, quite frankly, I never even thought of. But all the tools were there, and they had that imagination to, to build it. So that is probably – this is probably my, my single favorite aspect of the whole thing. Yeah, it's beautiful in the way of literally any person from any walk of life could make themselves as a character in the system without being any having any rigid class system keeping you from doing exactly what you want. That's very true, and for all of those very cautious game masters out there, we have a simple mechanic built into this thing, which is called, if you don't allow it, it doesn't happen. So it would be altogether possible for you to give people a relatively short, short list, a long list. You can't do these things. I'm not going to let you have knowledge of cryogenic technologies. No, I'm not going to let you know how to defuse a nuclear bomb. That's not important <laughs> to the that's not important to the story. That that's an old joke for those of you who remember the Twilight 2000 role-playing game. Mm-hmm. There is, there is a skill in there, nuclear warhead technician. And I I I I can't tell you how many times somebody really tortured the system so that their character could have the skill, and yet they, they never used it. Yeah, there's nothing worse than someone putting in all the effort to explain the reason why they have it, and then not to be able to use it, because then it's a dead skill that's not not contributing to the story. Yes, and one of the things we've done to ensure that a skill has relevancy in this game is we have introduced something called background knowledge. And you can think of it as wide category contextual knowledge. And this, again, another useful tool for GMs and referees, because so many times, and I'm not trying to knock anybody here, but sometimes players are better game referee. They're they're better game lawyers than the referees are. So... We built this mechanic in here. If you have no background knowledge of automobiles, you're not going to know what you're looking at when you see one. It works out quite nicely that way because that way, you know, it helps reinforce you, the player, and the player's, the character's knowledge as two separate pools. Yes, and it also means that you can plan for long-term character viability. Back in the day when when first edition Dungeons & Dragons was a thing, I used to know people who would build their first-level character in a certain way because they were planning in very painful detail exactly what their character was going to be by the time they got to 10th level. Oh, definitely. I remember, especially like in 3.5, a lot of folks had to do that tree of planning yourself 20 levels from now to be the character you want to be eventually. Yes. And so for for the people who want to do that sort of thing, if the referee will allow it, yes, you could start off with certain areas of background knowledge that you don't currently have any basic advanced skill to use. But because you start off having it, okay, fine, it makes you feel better. And as a GM, that's nice because that way you know it's it's seeding the future because you know what the players want in the future. Yes, absolutely. And it makes future scenario and campaign campaign planning a lot easier because as the GM referee, you can sit there, you can look at the character sheets as everybody built them out, and you can make a list. This is the, the list of background knowledge that everybody in the party has. Mm-hmm. 
if you decide that they all come from the same community, it gives you a thumbnail blueprint of what the community has at its disposal. If all the characters have chosen some background knowledge in automobiles, then okay, fine. The community they come from has working automobiles. It may be just one, but but by golly, they've got them. They've probably been run over by one. They know what that is. All right, that's useful. That's a very handy thing to have. And we did build the technology tree to a very high level so that anybody who wants it, if they really want to have super science in their post-apocalyptic world, they can. Now, it'll be very challenging to get the prerequisite skills necessary so that when you want to construct your own artificial intelligence or you want to make the alloy that will let this, the, your, your, your spacecraft survive reentry, whatever it is you're going to do, you know, the fact is you're going to be an old man by the time you get there. But if, if it really mattered to you, you could. Mm-hmm. It just needs to be, you know, thought out ahead of time and, you know, storied in. Yes, which brings me to my second favorite thing about the post-apocalyptic genre. For as long as I can remember, men and women alike have enjoyed the fantasy of the, the, the person from the past. The character who has been in suspended animation for the last four centuries, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the guy who had when when they put him in cryo, he had five PhDs, four <laughs> master's degrees, and you know, se- seven undergraduate degrees. All right, that that's absolutely fantastic. You do realize he's going to lose his mind, but. Fine. There, there, there he is, and you've got the full justification for it. So when you take him out, you thaw him out, you, you cut him loose in the, the post-apocalyptic world where everybody is an uncouth barbarian by your standards, you might still rule the world, but you're not going to be nice while you do it. <laughs> There's going to be that moment where you drop to the sand and say, you blew it all up. Yes. You know. Because you wake up and it's the world of Thundar the Barbarian, you know. There's going to be some culture shock. There, there, there easily can be, but with the tools we've provided here, especially going back to that background knowledge, it makes it possible so that players and GMs are both on the same page, and when the GM says, no, you can't, then there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for why not built in. Which is is nice. I mean, usually with most gaming groups, your GM can just say, why not story? And the players would be okay. But sometimes, you know, I remember my early days of playing Rifts when you had to limit what OCCs and, you know, people could play. And you get you do get pushback. So it's nice to just be able to say, book says so. Yes, which then brings me to my third and final point. And all three of these things are the foundation of the tripod that supports the game. All gamers mod. That is the fact. You'll go down to your favorite game store tomorrow. You'll buy something that really blows your mind. After you've had it for six months, you're going to say, you know, that, that that rule on page 45 really bugs me. Okay, eh, house rule change. So you're going to do it. And sometimes 
games are modded very heavily. So no matter how much or how little you want to make changes to the architecture of AC after collapse, we have shown you all the math at every step of the way. We have explained the logic and rationality of every written rule at every step of the way. And because the whole thing is built on the hierarchy of simple or complicated, you have right there the full post-apocalyptic toolkit. If you don't like what we did, you can change it. 25 years from now, if you imagine some whole new different thing, you can build it. Hmm. Yeah, you do a great job of actually giving the keys to the kingdom away when you actually explain this is the reason why. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I, I give you a little past history. We've all been there. We have all done this. First and second edition Dungeons and Dragons, everybody loved the hell out of it until they started developing their house rules. And OK, this was fine when we were 15. Mm -hmm. We're really, really pushing the outer boundaries by the time we're 20, and we've thoroughly broken it by the time we're 25 because we have discovered the terrible inside secret that when you peel it, the math is incomplete. All the formulas don't add up. Gygax and his people went through and they told you what it could do, but they never they 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 never gave you the keys to the kingdom. So when they assigned a gold piece value to it, you sat there, you looked at it and you said, "Huh, you know, the staff of the magi, that's very interesting that it does these things. It is very interesting that it costs this amount of money. How do I build one?" The DM has to say, "I don't know." Yep, and then you have to ad hoc out out the yin yang. Not to mention the like you said with the level creep, the game becomes a different game at different stages. It does, and all games, regardless of genre, whether it's Cthulhu or fantasy or or anything related to modern war, all games evolve over time. Which goes back to the earlier point about needing to give you the keys to the kingdom so that when your tastes have changed, you don't have to put the, sh the game on the shelf. The game will change with you. Which, which that can be really nice, that, to the, that it evolves with the player group rather than just in resulting in burnout for one or two people and then having to put the book on the shelf for a couple of years and then try something else. Yes. Now, just in case you're wondering, right now as we speak, there are half a dozen detailed source books out on the market. So if the basic rules are sufficiently interesting to you, but you want to know everything there is to know, quote unquote, about different subject areas, we've already worked out a lot of that. And that's one of the reasons why it took us so many years to launch this game, because the last 10 years of this, if you get in your secret time machine and go back to 2009, we had made the decision that we were we didn't want to be one of those companies that launched with the basic rules and then you don't see or hear from us again for the next four years. Mm -hmm. uh, we wanted to launch with the basic rules and then because we had probably I, th I think we put seven, seven eight years into playtesting. We developed that wish list so that if I walked into my favorite game store and I saw this and I fell in love with it on a Friday, if I walk back into the store on the Monday, I want to know that these six source books are out there. They exist. I can badger my parents for allowance money. Uh, I can do something. I, uh, it, it, there, there, there will be a real need for that. So mm -hmm. we, we built those six source books and 
launched them all at the same time that uh, the basic rules came out. And uh, yeah, sure. Some people said we were nuts. <laughs> it's ambitious. It's definitely ambitious to say, hey, we're going to bring out a whole line when most companies would like five years ago, a certain company released one book. Then it took three months for the next book to come out. Then three more months for the next book to come out while people were salivating for those books. So it's nice that, that you, you brought out the whole collection at the very beginning. Now, I can tell you for a fact that we've got six more of these source books on the drawing board, and there is a definite end point. We're not going to be one of these companies that keeps putting out more and more and more and more and more just because we want to get paid. Mm -hmm. My lo my long-term goal is to say everything you need to know about the game and then shut up. Because then you have to go play it. And that, that should be the years of good times of playing the game and creating stories. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting you should mention stories because the second half of this whole juggernaut thing we're trying to do here is we're trying to not only create the fictional universe and the game mechanics that go along with it, we're going to put out a long list of novels based on the game. Oh, see, that's always cool. So that way you can, you know, hear about another story from another point of view from what your gaming group is doing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when uh, years ago I was walking through my favorite lo local game store and third edition Gamma World was on the shelf and they actually had a choose your own adventure novel mm -hmm. ba based on the game. And I said, well, that's a good idea, but what I really want is I want a whole novel. I went home that night, and I wrote in my notebook on one single page just the word novel, N-O-V-E-L. It just takes up one whole page, and you know, and that, that was like 25 years ago. But, mm -hmm. but uh, we also – not only did we launch with the basic rule book, not only did we launch with six source books, but, but heaven help us, just to show you how much of a masochist I am, we launched with a novel based on the game right out of the gate. Wow. And, and book writing is not a simple, easy process. That's one that takes lots of effort and time. That's very true. And it is one of the hurdles because in so many of the cases, you might be sufficiently brilliant at the math to create the game, mm -hmm. but you might need to draw on somebody else's skill set paint the picture to make the novels uh, based on the game and I've always thought of myself I'm a very lucky man because I get to do both and I'm such a workaholic that if you leave me alone for a long weekend I'll have the first half of the next novel oh wow that's that is awesome now it in addition to all of this just to be sensitive to the the the, the modern digital ecosystem we have put out two anthologies based on the game and these anthologies in, in simple commercial terms they cost half of what the novels cost mm -hmm. because i've seen it i've been lurking on facebook and things for for like the last four years and there are you know i'm interested in the game i don't know i think i'll try the novel first because the the novel is cheaper and I have actually seen a few small game designers uh, publish individual short stories, 99 cents a pop. And that's part of what gets people interested in, in the rest of the product line. So uh, by next year, we'll have launched a third anthology. 
And we're going to have to wait and see because now that I've worked myself to the bone and we, we, we've got all this stuff out there, we're going to spend the next 12 to 24 months to promote it and get feedback to see what else people want. Yeah, see, that's that's always the hard one is to getting the return information on, okay, you shotgun a bunch of items, what is it that people like? Which hopefully, you know, doing things like going on podcasts, the uh, social media circuit, you know, hopefully feedback will be something that comes back. Which, like you said, with the novels, it's great because the novel is an amuse-bouche of the this, this, this story that you're trying to create. And one thing that I like about novelizations of, for games is it's a great way to introduce the players and the game master into the universe that you're trying to design. So that way everyone's on the same page. Yes, and to give you a little bit of history, we go way back in time, back to the early 2000s. And the people who were helping me build this game were on the edge of mutiny because they understood the game mechanics, but they didn't really feel like they understood the the backstory. And I had to stop because most of these people are younger than me, and the Cold War to them is something they read about in a history book. Mm-hmm. So I actually wrote Haven's Legacy as a teaching tool. And that's one of those things that after nine pots of coffee in a long weekend, um, I came I, I came back to them and I said, OK, it's got typos. But here this is this is what I'm talking about. And they it, it took them about two weeks to digest it. But they came back to me and said, oh, OK, yeah, now I totally got it. I understand. Which it's it's true. There there is a bit of a generation change. Like I've even talked to some of my different playgroups for different games. I've always compared to the movie Red Dawn. There's the Red Dawn that I grew up on in the 80s, and then there's the movie Red Dawn that the kids got like what five six years ago. 2012. Yes. Yeah, totally different movies. They shouldn't have been named the same name because they are totally different movies. But they're how we as a culture compared the 80s apocalypse cold war you know issue with the modern day how we would see if we were ever invaded by an enemy and i've I've had people you know ask me it's like why do you compare that it's like go back and watch both of them and see the difference in the characters because it's pretty much the same story but go see how the characters are different Oh, absolutely. That is uh, that is very true. The uh, the books and movies of the 80s and early 90s. And for those of you who care about such things, the golden age of Cold War survivalist men's adventure fiction was 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 1981 to 1991. And as far as I know, I've got every last page of it on a bookshelf over here right behind me. So very that, nice. it's, it's kind of a it's kind of a shrine to that sort of thing. But yes, you know, I, I was one of those people. Yes, I totally had heartburn with, uh, you know, 2012 Red Dawn because. You know, first and foremost, my my big knock on the whole thing is, I'm sorry, I can't take a North Korean invasion seriously. That's just not, that's not in my 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 reality to understand. But beyond that, you know, the the era that I grew up in uh, was very. Uh, I, it, what you see in the 1984 Red Dawn is is an idealized version 
uh, of what many people lived with back in the day. Kids learned how to shoot a gun before they could ride a bike. Mm-hmm. A lot, of, a lot of people had, you know, uh, you know, case lots of food under their house just, just, just in case. Well, you know, if the nuclear war doesn't flash fry me, I'll at least have something to eat because we were thinking beyond that. And, and yes, I, I, I'm about to say something generationally offensive here. But you look at Red Dawn 2012. Oh my gosh, we've been invaded. Well, when is uh, when, when is somebody going to do something? When what is the mean? guy going to show up and do it? Yeah. What do you mean us? <laughs> when, when you say us, exactly what are you? No, uh, well, uh, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> you know, 1984 Red Dawn is, holy cow, we've been invaded. Okay, you go there, you go there, you go there. We'll meet up over there after dinner and count the bodies. We'll see what happens. <laughs> it's definitely two different uh, animals, definitely two different animals. It is. And with that in mind, going back to the game mechanics, from the very first moment I had the idea for this game, I knew it needed to be a classless character generation system, because if you put 10 people in a room, everybody has a different image in their mind of who and what they are. And I will t- I will tell you a little secret just between you and me. OK, people with disabilities do not abandon their disabilities inside their imagination. If you find somebody who likes the idea of Rambo and you know they, wh- whatever their individual disability is, in their mind, it's that version of Rambo. He might be in a wheelchair. He might be deaf. He might have you know neurological issues, whatever. But he's still gonna kill them all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you because know, you, you your brain processes that's your point of view. I mean, that's one thing I love in the game mechanics, because as someone who wears glasses also, it's got rules for wearing glasses. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I'll tell you, tell you another little secret about that. Most of the time, your average person is not afraid of what they cannot see. So when you're playing one of these games and you do not want to be intimidated by the NPC villain, you have your character take their glasses off. And then you look right at that blurry, fuzzy image and say, do you have a problem with me? Because if you have a problem with me, man, you just come on over here and get some. <laughs> you can see the dramatic you know, video where the actor takes off his glasses and looks right into the camera. You know, you just get that, that powerful moment to emphasize. Yes. Now, I, I'll tell you – Okay, we'll go back. And once upon a time, a group of my friends in high school, we were playing Gamma World, and I had one of those great aha moments. One of the guys in this group had a secret. His personal secret, which he confided to me, was that he wore a hearing aid. He kept his hair cut long, and and he always wore a stocking cap or something. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, he, he, he didn't want – it was one of the over-the-ear types, and he didn't want anybody to ever see it, to ever know about it. Well, I knew about it, and subconsciously, it, it rubbed off on me, and I had typed up a list of random loot items. So we've just finished the scenario for the night, and the guys are going through the random loot table, and they're rolling their dice to see what they come up with. And one of the random loot items – is a hearing aid. Now, my friend sitting at the end of the table over there starts to get real antsy because everybody else is claiming all the other loot items. Mm-hmm. 
And he finally stands up and he says, guys, I want that hearing aid. And they just looked at him. Why? And he says, I don't have to tell you anything. I just, I'm just telling you I want it. If you don't give it to me, I'm going to kill all of you. Damn. <laughs> and they pushed him on the matter. And he takes off his hat. He shows them the hearing aid. And you know they, they, they didn't give him any trouble about it. He's like, okay, yeah, totally fine. You, absolutely. You get the hearing aid. And that, that becomes almost a humbling shame moment, you know. Yes, uh, it, it, after after a fashion, uh, yes. But it was a moment of enlightenment for me because, aha, yes, I know what has to be in the game someday. I totally get it. Because mm-hmm. the, these are real-world things that do come up. And they, they, they do. And I was one of those kids from grade school all the way through high school. I had super giant thick glasses, and it, it – my my family was in the military, and so one of the good things I can say is that every two years, I got a clean start. Mm-hmm. I got a chance to go to a new school, new school, new school. Well, okay, that's fine, but every new school has a bully who says, hey, the fat kid over there with the glasses, oh, that looks like fun. I think I'm going to go take his glasses. By the time I got to high school, the thing that the bully does not understand is, I'm waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, at that point, you've been conditioned socially as well as physically that you know it's coming. Sure, yeah. You know, it, it, it's politically incorrect to say it, but, you know, sometime during the first week of school, me and whoever the bully was, we would develop an understanding. <laughs> this, this understanding would get me sent to the principal's office, but the the understanding would remain in effect for the rest of the time I was at that school. It's it's better to have one and done, and then instead of an issue that keeps reoccurring. Yes, and because I saw how other people who didn't fight back were affected, I kept asking myself, how 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 do I give somebody the tools to fight back? And by the time I get old enough to start writing fiction, I start developing characters with disabilities who not only use it as an advantage but that becomes a good justifiable reason for them to fight back Mm -hmm. so i you know it it is the lesson that speaks to me over and over and over again so that when we do actually get to the development of the game ac after collapse it's in there yeah and you can always take a negative and make a positive out of it I mean, even for folks who watch uh, The Walking Dead now, they have characters that use American Sign Language, and they use that to their advantage to communicate privately without other people listening in. Oh, yes, absolutely. One of, uh, one of the more enjoyable moments I recall from old days of, of uh, role-playing was uh, I, 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 I was just playing in somebody else's game, and they thought – they would uh, um, do something clever. So I showed up. It's a game with pre-made characters, and the guy gives me the character. He says, well, I, I understand. You, you know how to be legally blind, uh, but, but, but do you know how to be deaf? Well, unfortunately for him, the bad guy he chose for his adventure was was basically trying to take over the village using a sonic weapon. Ooh. 
And I said, well, this isn't this is this is going to end badly for him. And the the DM says, what are you talking about? And I said, just 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 wait for it. Just wait for it. And by the end of by by the end of the adventure, when all the other characters in the party have been incapacitated by the sonic weapon, the referee says he says, well, well, okay, Justin, your character is the only one left. What are you going to do? And I said, okay, well, I'm going to take the gun from the guy next to me. I'm going to take the knife from the other fellow over there, the other guy over there. I know he's got a pair of stun grenades. And then I'm going to go get the villain. And he says, why would you do that? Because I'm not afraid of the sonic weapon. Because you're just seeing people fall over and it's not affecting you whatsoever. That's it. That's it right there. And again, that was another one of those those moments where, yes, it was going to take 20 years, but eventually it ends up in the the basic rules for this game. From a story point of view, I could almost see like a spaghetti Western where the bad guy is shooting the town down the main street with this weapon and everyone's ground on the ground clutching their ears. And your character could just calmly be walking slowly down the main street right to the villain who's looking around like why is this not working yes absolutely that 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 is uh, that is the fact and it's it's something that uh, despite all my efforts i haven't had a chance to enshrine it in a novel yet but it is something i, I want to do in the future so there are so many things that yes we we will spend our entire lives learning how to live with those things but if you learn how to apply them they can be a positive as a legally blind person i can i can go anywhere and i can talk to anybody and it doesn't matter how beautiful or not beautiful they are they're just an image and a voice to me so it's much harder for them to intimidate me or to influence me and if i go somewhere and speak to an entire stadium of people the crowd does not scare me because i can't see them mm-hmm I mean, heck, um, spoiler alert, Book of Eli. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as a great apocalyptic movie with a hero with a great twist at the end, you know. And that's another skill that only the visually impaired would have is being able to read Braille. Very true. Yes. No, I'm grateful to that movie because uh, a friend of mine at the time, um, I, I made him a bet. I said, I can tell you what's in that backpack. And he's like, no. And I said, well, how, how much you want to put on it? And he's like, I don't want to take your money. Well, I, I, I'm quite willing to take your money. How much you want to put on it? And, you know, he, he, was, just, he, he was just blown away. And, and after the fact, he accused me of taking advantage of him. <laughs> you used inside knowledge. <laughs> Now that's just that's just you know spoiled grapes there. It yeah. is, it is. But here in today's world, because post-apocalyptic themes can come in so many shapes and sizes, we now have the opportunity to be challenged as gamers in so many different ways. It's not just the defeating of prejudices; it is the developing of new. Uh, problem-solving skills, because now that so many people are acknowledged and so many different types of people are acknowledged out in the open, the question before game designers and game players is, what happens to those people? What happens with those people in a post-apocalyptic setting? Because the difference between the makers and the takers 
is going to be heightened only because I can't get any bars on my cell phone anymore. I'll just use it as a weapon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stick a knife through it and use a lithium battery to explode. If it, if, it, if, it, if it should come down to it, and there is such a wide range of inventiveness challenges that, in my opinion, some of these things are not possible until there is a true, genuine need to do it. And when there is a real need to do it, a lot of gamers will surprise themselves with the just the mind-blowing extent of their own creativity. I never would have thought of it if I wasn't in this situation. That's one of those magical moments as a game master when you're playing something through and they they have choice A, B, and C, and they come up with something completely left field that you had no idea they'd take. And that's just a magical moment as a GM when you're playing and you're like, you guys are geniuses. You know, necessity truly is the birthplace of invention. It is, and that's why uh, I am so very proud of what people do with their character development. And I will even go so far as to say this here and now. It's very likely that if anybody at all, within the sound of my voice, was to sit down and open up the pages of this basic rule book, you could model yourself using these character generation guidelines to within about 90% of what you are in real life. And you talk about a humbling experience. When I sat down and, and filled out a character sheet of what I thought I was, I felt so pitiful because of what I didn't know. But see, then you just have to realize what you've specialized in. You know, you know. speaking of, you know, the character development system is the character points. That was one thing that I really liked because in a lot of the newer role-playing games that have been coming out is there's instant gratification for when you complete a scenario. And with the character points, you give that to players as a tangible instant reward for once you complete a campaign or you get through a scenario. Yes, and that goes back to the old days of experience points. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, people who know me, we started doing something, a variant like that, back in college. And I, I recall what happened one night. Uh, we, there was, somebody was on the very verge of losing a much prized character. And they asked me, just out of the blue... How many of my experience points can I trade to re-roll these dice? It had never come up before, but I because I realized, you know, what they're trying to do. Basically, you know, this is this is the you know the real world equivalent of trying to bargain with death. Mm-hmm. But 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 then I asked myself, as I like, hold on, wait a minute. You know, these experience points are just a number on the page, and the number goes up over time, and. And what would happen? What would happen? And so we started introducing a, a schedule of uh, of what things would cost. And and the the house rule at the time was that even if you even if you spent yourself down to zero experience points, you would not lose. The, the skills and abilities you had at your present level, but because you are essentially borrowing karma against the future, it's going to take you a stupidly long time to reach that next level should you be so fortunate as to get there. 
Mm-hmm. And that that that's where that that's where that whole thing started from. So during the playtesting phase, this went over like hotcakes on a winter day. People loved that. <laughs> you mean uh, you, you you mean if I if I do enough setups during gameplay and uh, and I save my character points that I, I I can raise that stat? Yes, I'll do that. Which it's it's nice because it gives them instant tangible reward to you know keep playing basically <laughs> it does and there is an aspect of life i mean real real life to this uh, i have seen people that i've known for 20 and 30 years they have lived very calm quiet existences but only in moments of great trauma when they were truly genuinely in need of some burst of strength or some burst of willpower did that happen? And when it was all over with, they would say, you know, the situation pushed me to it. Mm-hmm. If, if I hadn't been pushed to it, I would have never done it. And that's part of what reinforced this idea. So you can, to a certain extent, think of uh, unused character points as unused potential and how do I want to use that potential here and now during playtesting one of the more common things was in a knockdown drag out fight where the bad guy was starting to get the upper hand somebody says okay I want to burn a whole stack of of character points so that I can I I can actually have a statistically probable chance of making the ultimate long-range kill shot Wow. And that's that's a deep moment where you just feel the story's tension because they want to succeed. Yes, yes. And uh, sometimes it's not all combat uh, situations where a character is running away from a group of robots that will just absolutely grind them to hamburger if they catch them. And the guy says, okay, I'm on top of a 10-story building. Across the street is is an 8-story building. I want to burn a whole bunch of my character points so that I can run, I can jump, and I can make that leap without being road pizza. Because <laughs> nobody wants to end up just five feet short and hitting the side of the building and smearing your way down. It's, just, would... it's just not big damn hero stuff. No, but – it goes back to what you were just talking about. If you give people the tools to be the big hero in vital moments, they'll do it. Mm-hmm. They will. They will step up, you know, just like in real life. And so when you are able to harness that, I, I'm, I'm saying this right now to all the GMs out there. You, uh, There are times when a, a GM will – We'll say, okay, scenario A leads to scenario B leads to scenario C. And within limits for some game groups, that's fine. But there's a lot of game groups out there who want a far more fluid situation. And when you do want that flexibility, when the players are motivated by the the, the control they have over their future outcomes – you might be surprised what they're willing to do. I've lost track of how many times I'm giving somebody the opening scene in a moment and they lock on to some small detail. Well, hold on. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You just said that in the village across the river, 
They saw the thing. I want to go there. I want to talk to them. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, that, that's fine. Sure. It, it has no bearing on the story, but uh, all right, fine. Let, let's go ahead and do that. So, um, and, and so they, they, they do go across the village. Yes, we totally saw the thing. It went that way. And the, the, the party members are like, holy cow. We, we, we have to go there. We have to do this. And I just, you know, you, you just pick up your pile of paper and you, you put it aside. All right, then we're going east. <laughs> and you act like that was the plan the whole time. Yes, but uh, uh, that's that's how player driven stories take you to places you never thought you were going to go. And if the game mechanics are flexible enough you can go there with them. Mm-hmm. Which, which that's a great thing when the game mechanics support player agency. So that way the players feel like we're not just in a point A, point B binary video game. We're actually in a sandbox doing whatever we want. Yes. And that's where the skill system comes in. Because if you don't know what skills your character is supposed to have, nine of ten gamers I meet today have no experience with post-apocalyptic games, so they, there's, there's stuff they, they, they just don't know. Mm-hmm. And the background knowledge system gives them a clue about what it is they might need in the future. And as the game evolves and they begin acquiring future skills, future skills, future skills, they begin to self-educate themselves into the post-apocalyptic universes. These are the memes. These are the themes. These are the common tropes. I begin to see now why we shouldn't step on that. Totally get it. <laughs> which, which that's a good thing, too, because in a lot of gaming groups I've been with newer players, I always tell them three things that you should ask whenever you're stumped. Because a lot of times in a, in a puzzle, a quiz, a quest, you know, type of deal, look at your GM and say, would my character know what to do right now? Would my character know what trick I need to do? So that way, as a player, because, you know, not all players, again, player knowledge and character knowledge are two separate things. That way, the player can look at the GM and say, here's my skill. What does that suggest? So that way, as a reasonably intelligent creature with that skill, even the GM could help throw a bone to the player and give them a helping, you know, helping hand of maybe you could do this or that. Yes, and uh, just to give you a little teaser, we built the reason attribute as a meta score. Mm -hmm. You you will roll dice for your creativity. You will roll dice for your empathy, but then you'll add those two numbers together, divide them by two, and that's your that's your reason score. And the way we have dictionarily defined what these things are, we have allowed players to harness their own deductive capabilities in their own ways. I used to know a guy who was the the, the most unbelievably empathic person, but a glass of water was more creative than he was, but he would still sit there at game night and he would learn, he would listen, he would absorb all of the details. And then at the critical moment, he would put down his pencil and he would say, okay, I know who the murderer is. And everybody would look at him and he would say, 
All right, now just 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 follow me here for a second, because it's Tuesday and the full moon is three days from now, <laughs> and the cheese is Munster. The car is parked on the other side of the road. The guy had a whistle in his pocket, and the dog was asleep. It means it was Mister Jones. <laughs> He's that guy that you want at every murder mystery, but to have him quiet till after the credits. That, 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 that is entirely the thing. And we've all known people who were very quiet, very reserved, and no amount of, no amount of simulated violence in the game would be of any concern to them. But when the problem comes up, they can just say, uh, that thing up there. No, the other one on the shelf. Just, just grab it with both hands and turn it. And and that's their they they have such awesome creativity factors that you just you know their mind is light years ahead of everybody else to include the GM and so they you know there there are parts of the game that can be almost boring to them mm-hmm. but uh, so that that that's where that, that that's where the creativity comes in because some people have it some people don't and when it comes to reason. There are something like 48 different examples of reason used in the basic book, and the the bulk of them are predicated on what you were just talking about. If somebody said, uh, what do I reason this to be? What do I think this is? Why would I think it is this way? Then they have the opportunity to work off that stat. Which is super helpful because I kind of I used to way back in the day, back in second first edition, call that the throw me a bone idea of do you need to to throw a bone of what to do next? Because people do they just get they're so tied up in the moment that they don't see the tree in the forest. They just need a, a little kick to go in the right direction. They can, but more than anything else, the 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 life lesson that has been taught to me is the people who think differently to just let them think differently. Mm-hmm. Which, which that's an important thing at the game table in general, in every role playing scenario, because different players have different strengths, different reasons that they're at the game table and they're all there just to have a good time. That's, that's, that's one of the important lessons. And that's part of what we tried to build in with this, because if you don't want to solve the mystery, if you don't want to get rich, if you just want to experience the immersive environment, then you can. And when you have three or more people at the gaming table, it becomes inevitable that they compromise with each other. Okay, today we'll walk through the town. Tomorrow we'll rob the bank. The day after that, we'll go kill the robot. That's something that I you definitely learn is the, the compromise at the game table amongst the players as well as with the GM. So we did kind of touch, by the way, on the game mechanics. What is the base mechanic? That the game system uses. No big surprise. The base, the, the 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 base mechanic is d20. It, it, it's what you use to resolve skills, resolve combat, etc. But there is plenty of uh, d6 use throughout for attributes, for uh, assignment of damage. And I would just like to point out one thing about the damage. Uh, there was a, a mechanic I saw about 35 years ago that, that stuck with me. The idea of 
basically lethal damage versus non-lethal damage. So we have constructed characters who have hit points and they have energy points. The, the, the principal stat for, for what you would call constitution is, uh, hardiness. So we call the hit points hard points. And the, the, the vigor stat is where you get your, your vigor points from. And we've all been there back in the day, first edition, second edition, Dungeons and Dragons. How do you incapacitate the sentry and drag him away for questioning without killing him? Mm-hmm. That that's always been a hard one in a lot of the D- versions of D and D is lethal versus non-lethal. So if we give you hit points, we give you energy points, and somebody uses something like a stun grenade or just a baseball bat properly applied, then uh, you know even Conan the Barbarian can be rendered unconscious. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's more advantage to knock someone out than kill them outright. That is that, that that's very true. Now, when you get into weapon mechanics, uh, this th- this can be an issue because some weapons do not lend themselves at all to to non lethal damage, mm-hmm. but other weapons are are far more suited to it. And when you factor in the the game mechanics of crafting, it doesn't matter if it's a fantasy setting, outer space, or post-apocalyptic. A lot of people want to be able to make their own weapons and armor, or they want to be able to assemble loot items that they have gotten in the course of game mm-hmm. gameplay as weapons and armor and use them in a customizable way for their own purposes. And that that's why we built all of that into the structure of the game. Are you kidding? That's one thing that a few of my friends that, you know, when we get to playing this, they're wastelanders. It's, it's one of the genres that they love cosplaying. And you know they're going to want the stop sign shield, the, you know, pipe with two saw blades attached to it. So it's a it's an axe, but it's really a customized saw blade axe of death, you know. Yes. Which totally lends to the, you know, after the apocalypse is, is the hodgepodge homespun weaponry that will be out there. Yes. And so if you want to accentuate, if you want to emphasize the accuracy of your arrows or the lethality of your sword, we have built in game mechanics that will let you do this. And for all of the firearms aficionados out there, uh, for those of you who would truly genuinely love, love, love to build your own handguns with custom grips, custom sights, you maybe want to re engineer the barrel grooves or something we also have mechanics in the game for that but for those of you who just want to pick up the gun and shoot the darn thing you can take the simpler approach and do that too which again goes back to that idea of you know you can make it as complicated as you want Yes, you can, and uh, that, that, that touches on something that's always been a sore spot for me how do you have gamers of different experience levels at the same table? Mm-hmm. So you have the novice and you have the person who's been doing it for two or three years. And then over there on the other side of the table, you've got the guy who's got 40 years, 40 years of experience. How do you keep them all at the same table? And that's why we used the mechanics that we did so that you could have advanced gamers with novice gamers at the same table. 
So that way everybody's on a fair fair field, basically playing on the same level. Sure. And when you say to the novice gamer, uh, this is new to your character, you haven't learned it very well yet, perhaps you should not do it, then they can accept that as, as legitimate guidance rather than feel like they're being patronized. Mm-hmm. So that way it's like, hey, just giving the heads up, you think if you try to do that, you'll probably be on the losing end of that dice roll. That could certainly be the case. Now, this also can be applied to armor. We use an armor point combat system so that depending entirely on the form of attack, uh, that that determines how effective uh, the armor is, and uh, those of you who have played 3rd edition, 4th edition of Dungeons & Dragons, this will be old hat for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's there's some some good old similarities that make perfect sense when you look at them. Yes, absolutely, I, I agree. But because we built them as both basic and advanced, it lets you play the game with uh, with as much gray matter or as little as you want. And there are all days when we just want to sit down and have a good old fashioned dungeon crawl. Mm-hmm. And, then the, and that leads really well to it, which, you know, I could totally see a going into the subway system dungeon crawl used in this game like nobody's business. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, with with that in mind, the modern post-apocalyptic environment very often has some element of artificial intelligence in it. And, you know, we're all fans of the Terminator movie and whatnot, uh, that that whole franchise. And but but the problem has always been, how do you introduce rogue AI into a post-apocalyptic setting without making absolutely certain that it's a total human genocide. And there is an entirely separate source book out there that deals with uh, electronics, electronic programming, artificial intelligence, etc. The whole thing is broken out segment by segment so that GMs and referees, they can have as much or as little technology terror as they want. See, that's a nice one, because that way you can speckle it in there, but not take over the story. Yes, that is that that, that is uh, the, the, the plain and simple fact. And, you know, the terrible truth is that uh, um, you need to have certain weapons to deal with certain threats. And that's true in any game. If you are faced with a Dungeons & Dragons scenario and it's an anti-paladin or a death knight, then, you know, if you don't have the Holy Avenger, just go home. Just just do it now. Just turn around and go, leave. It's better for everybody. And in the post-apocalyptic situation, if you are faced with some Terminator-like monster, some terrible robot, and you don't have the shoulder-launched anti-tank missile, just go home. Do it now. No, it's true. It's like, like if you have Darth Vader pop up on screen, but no Jedi, you don't stand a chance. Run. Which... Now, there is an underlying assumption that I've always made in there, which is I, I, I just know somebody's going to want to take issue with it. So I'll, I'll say something about it now. Uh, just because you publish a game with high end weapons that can be used to defeat a wide range of bad guys does not mean the GM is going to let you find those weapons. 
or they'll have more than one shot. <laughs> yes, and so that that that's always that's always part of the the, the challenge. But you, know, you you can talk from now till the end of time about game balance. All I can promise you, uh, with uh, with a certain amount of mathematical certainty, is the scalability that we built this product with is designed so that uh, if you do in fact have energy weapons, Gauss weapons, etc., that will show you what an appropriate bad guy would be like to, you know, the, if you have a Gauss rifle, what sort of bad guy are you going to kill with a Gauss rifle? You're not going to waste the Gauss rifle on the local orc. Mm-hmm. And even worse, once you get that, that, that rifle, everybody and their brother's going to want it. Yes, that, that, that's true. Although, I gotta admit, one of the things that I do find fascinating about modern gamers in a post-apocalyptic setting is that on the one hand, they covet the really good toys. They want the machine guns, they want the landmines, they want the rocket launcher. But when they've got them, then all of a sudden they develop a high degree of discretion and they go out of their way to keep the secret in ways that most of the gamers I ever knew back in the 1980s would never have even thought of. I, I definitely have to agree with that because back, back in the day, like playing like riffs, you know, as soon as somebody got that shiny new railgun, they were out there using it somewhere. <laughs> they were looking for the fight to justify having the weapon. Nowadays, folks are like, I don't want to use the last round. It's like, no, no, you got plenty. No, but seriously, if I start using this weapon, everybody will be coming out of the woodwork for it, so I'll have to shoot them too. Yes, and I do I, I do like that, and it just goes to show you that if you do this long enough, eventually times will change to present new challenges to you and it's just it's just part of what keeps the whole role playing experience fresh mm-hmm. the, the the fact that the culture is constantly evolving and changing yes and with 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 that in mind part of what i tried to do is build something that would outlive me one of the things that you'll notice is that all of the dates that are present in the role-playing game material, all of the dates that are present in the novels based on the game, mm-hmm. I personally cannot live long enough to actually see those dates happen. Ah. Okay. You may have seen an article in the news recently. Uh, in, in the original movie Blade Runner, uh, while, while when Harrison Ford's character is doing uh, his, his voiceover at the beginning of the movie, he happens to mention, you know, uh, uh, Wednesday, November nineteenth, two thousand nineteen. Mm-hmm. Well, Wednesday, November nineteenth of two thousand nineteen has recently come and gone. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I wanted to do was. Was, was I wanted to maintain the long-term viability of this product, so all of the future dates take place basically 2060 and beyond, and and it, it, it'll be a miracle of medical science if I live to 2060. <laughs> that see that does make sense because yeah, that's true. I mean, a lot of the older games that I've got talk about in the future of the. 1990s or the millennium, yeah, you know, and and you go back and look at those now, and it's like snicker, snicker, laugh, laugh, you know, 
it's like it's true blade runner is now set officially in the past you know when you look back at like the jetsons and other shows like that it's like 1990 so far in the future now it's you know 20 years ago Yes, you know, I, I, I really enjoy what the guys at Game Designers Workshop have done over the years. Uh, but over here on my shelf, I've got all of the Twilight 2000 stuff. And according to their published material, their timeline ended in 1995. <laughs> A lot of the uh, Shadowrun stuff does that, too. That's true. Now that you mention it, yeah, yeah. I, I, I seem to I seem to recall that. So, uh, with you know, with, with, so that that's part of what I was trying to do here was I, I was trying to live, I was trying to develop something that would outlive me, and I don't want uh, to be one of those people who goes to a convention someday, and you know, have people you know, well, well, when are you going to do it again? When are you going to update it? When is the next new thing? Mm-hmm. When's when's the next edition coming out? Which which I have to respect that you know is is you're not out there to just keep churning out books. You're out there to actually churn out a great book and system that it's one and done. You know you don't need to have a revised second edition or a third edition or a fourth edition come out. That is that that is my sincere hope. That's one of the things I have always admired about the original Traveler. They built it. When they were done, they said they were done, and that was it. You know, put the project is complete. It stands on its own. If you want something else, make something else. And that's my sincere hope is that probably by 2023, we'll have the last of the source books out. And it would please me very much to just spend the rest of the decade writing novels Based in the universe, uh, I've probably got over here in my filing cabinet a dozen outlines for for, for future novels, and because I can write, uh, I, I start the soup to nuts. I can do an entire novel in sixty days. Oh, wow. It gives me a lot of potential in the future. And and the idea of the anthologies too, because that way you can take bits and pieces from the setting and actually flesh them out with you know short stories too. Oh, yes. I remember the old days. Uh, people used to sit around with photocopied pages out of the different Gamma World books or even the different Twilight 2000 books, and they would try to find meaning in the published backstory. Mm-hmm. It's you, like, you, understand, you understand what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they basically try to, like, you know, decipher the story within the story. Yes. And that's that's one of those great things too is you you can you can bring out themes and things that, that are ageless. It could be a past, present, or future, and the theme still is relevant for every society. Yes, that 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 is that is the goal to be hoped for. And from a game designer's perspective, I'll say that that added three to five years to uh, to the design process. Mm-hmm. And I think we probably tore the whole thing down and rebuilt it from maybe about 15 or 16 times just to, 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 to dig as deeply as possible to look for the smallest flaws. That, that's a good thing that you're able to deconstruct it and, and basically justify its existence, you know, 
sort of like a, a dissertation where you know you're proving you're disproving everyone's attempt to disprove your your game that's true that, that that's uh, that's very true and we've all known game lawyers who uh you know they they enjoy looking for the the cracks in the foundation the the weak points in the armor and and however they can exploit it they they do i i i don't blame anybody for doing that but when they do it in a way that ruins other people's gaming experience it annoys me it's like food critics you know there's something in them that has to let them do this but it's not fair to the rest of the people that have to have something ruined from that they enjoy. Yes. Yeah. 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 I I used to know somebody who was a food critic and that, that, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree. I I agree with the point entirely. So uh, my hope is that years from now, you know, when somebody finds this podcast, because once it's uploaded to the internet, it basically lives forever. uh, I hope that, uh, I was not wrong about too many things, and I'm not trying to be a prophet. I am just trying to build something that that people can enjoy on an intuitive level rather than feeling like, man, I really should have paid more attention in college physics. Yeah, and besides, you're sharing with everyone something that you're passionate about, and that's that's when all is said and done, that's like one of the most important things as a person you can contribute is – creating something you love and sending it out there. And I would say that to anybody right now, if you're thinking about building a game, uh, if you believe in it, then, then do it. I'll tell you, the, the, the truth is I spent a lot of time trying to not do this, but over and over again, life would pick me up and drag me a little closer, a little closer, a little closer to, to doing this. And eventually it was the it was the Fourth of July weekend, two thousand seven. Oh wow! And it hit me like a ton of bricks that that everything, time, place, resources, uh, everything was perfectly aligned to do this. And we had a bunch of friends over to the house, and we were having the barbecue, the whole thing. And somebody was needling me. Hey, when are you going to get off the dime and actually do this? And I, you know, it just it just ticked me off enough. And I said, fine, as of right now. And that that's what that's what started the ball rolling. And it was winter of 2009. Wow. Uh, the bunch of us were the bunch of us got together for Halloween. And I said, okay, here's the schedule. I think it will take us 10 years to finalize this and get it rolled out. And they all looked at me like I was out of my mind, but here we are. And it's actually, um, you know, 10 years and seven months later. So here we are. So you're, you're, you're quite right. If you're going to chase the dream, don't be afraid of it and, you know, commit to it. And if it's going to take 36 years like it did for me, then that is just what it is. And it's nice having those friends that'll call you on your, your 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 BS of you need to get off and get it done. You know, that's one thing I have to admit. It is nice to have those friends who will just call you on it and say, "Get her done." Yeah, stop talking about it and just doing it. Just 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 get it done. And without that incentive, and, and 
because honestly, it was it, I was annoyed at the time. They were poking me. I didn't feel terribly supported. Uh, but without that incentive, a lot of things in life don't happen. And now that I am here, yes, I, I am profoundly grateful to all of them. And I'm going to probably spend the next 10 years trying to find nice things to do for them to show my gratitude. Or, or just turn them into villains in a book, you know, one of those. <laughs> I've done that a few uh, for uh, I I I have written other genres. Uh, quite some years ago, somebody told me uh, I'm really glad to help you, but I want to be a villain in your in one of your books, and I want to have a really spectacular death. <laughs> Immortalize them in fiction by making them horrible and dying horrible as well. <laughs> yes, and so that's that 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 that's exactly uh, that that's exactly what happened, and and uh, other people have in fact wanted to be uh, uh, minor named characters in, in in different books, and so I have in fact done that. But uh, I'm not going to out anybody. Uh, who, 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 you, know, <laughs> you you can figure out who these people are uh, for yourself. When you're reading that story and you're just like, this person seems so personable and real. He's got to be based on somebody. That's the, the, that's true. The one person you will not find in any of my fiction is me. There is no analog to me in anything I have ever written. Well, see, that's that's because there's a little bit of you in every blade of grass in the world you've created. That that is uh, that that that's probably true, and because you know, like you know, my parents, just like so many other people, said, "Don't brag." <laughs> so you know that 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 seems uh, that seems a little pretentious to to you know to write yourself into a story or some uh, some some something like that. So that's that's why I don't do it. But uh, in the in, in the future, I hope to challenge myself by uh, writing people who are more unlike me uh, than anything else I, I've done, because I, I freely admit I, I, I use character types that I'm familiar with. And so I think in the future, I want to challenge myself to use character types that I would have to learn a lot more about before I ever did it. Yeah, that that's that's one that can be really difficult. Is trying to learn different, you know, completely different process of, of personality, and you know, it can be fun. It can be a fun challenge, but you know, it does to do it justice. It takes work. It does, uh, and I can honestly say that I learn a lot through role playing. So when I go to somebody's house and I sit down and and uh, and they they hand me a character sheet that summarizes something i've never even thought of it it will challenge me and i do like to go home sit down and and just kind of write down some some random thoughts about what i learned mm -hmm. and then 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 comes the research <laughs> Uh, it can, it can, uh, uh, but but uh, more often than not, uh, I, I'm busy enough that I don't I don't have I don't have that much free time. So I am grateful to everybody who's ever given me a seat at their table for the evening. It's always uh, fascinating to 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 try and do it from a, a, a play play the game from a different perspective, and. You know, especially if you're in a game group that you know they, they like to sample a lot of different things, you know, you know six, eight, you know six, eight, ten different games in a year is not unheard of, and 
all of it in a great many cases, uh, can challenge you to to play things that, that you never thought about. And the hardest thing for me to do, honestly, is to play a normally sighted person because I honestly don't know what that is. You, you have to clutch at straws to find what's what's their motivation. So yeah, you know, when I when 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 I have a character looking through a pair of binoculars and I see somebody two miles away, I just have to take it as a given that normally sighted people can see that far with a pair of binoculars. So, uh, but but beyond that, it 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 is that that is one of my built-in challenges, and so I will actually ask a GM, hey, is it possible for a normally sighted person to see that far? And, uh, you know, sometimes they tell me, no, we're not superhuman. No, you can't see that. <laughs> but I have a really good pair of field glasses. <laughs> yes. But so you know, it goes to show you, everybody has something to learn. So whether you don't see very well or you don't hear very well or anything else, when you learn how to play a character that has the capabilities you don't, it can help you to understand how the other guy thinks, and, and that, that, that's useful for unlocking prejudice. And at, now that I'm older and wiser, I'm not nearly as riled up when, when, when somebody wants to get bent out of shape about what I can't see. Uh, it almost never bothers me anymore, and I almost never bother to give them an explanation. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, here's where we are. Now let's move on from this place. <laughs> that's it. Yes. So Justin, one thing I was going to ask is you and Shadow Fusion, where where can folks find you online so they can pick up the, the game books and the novels and things? Ah, uh, yes. Well, we have gone out of our way to make this as hard as possible. So here's the deal. <laughs> you can find everything I've ever written at ShadowFusionBooks.com. You can find us on Twitter at ShadowFusionBKS or... If you want to get a hold of me more directly, you can find me at justinoldham.com, and all of those will, will, will take you straight to the source. Otherwise, uh, the AC After Collapse product line is available on Drive-Thru RPG, and I just want to take a moment to say that they have been very good to me, so thanks very much, Drive-Thru RPG. You can also find my work on Amazon. They haven't been quite so good to me, so hey, guys, come on. You know, I'm not, I'm not lunch meat. And, and, of course, Drive-Thru RPG is one of the best spots to pick up PDFs of the game books. Absolutely. No, I, 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 I like uh, I like what they've done. I like what they continue to do for new gamers. And it's proof positive that things have changed. I started doing this when the idea of being self-published was a dirty word. I mean, I lost friends when they found out that I was self-published. They got away from me like I, you know, like, like, like I had the plague or something. But now today, the world has changed and the world is your marketplace and the world is full of people who are gamers. They like what you like. They're interested in what you're interested in. So no matter what project you think you're going to develop in the future, don't sell yourself short. Don't count yourself out. You're probably going to be very surprised at how much of a good constructive reception you get after you survive the launch process. That's, that's one thing I tell a lot of our friends, that if you draw, write, paint, build the thing that you love, 
you'll be really surprised how many folks out there love it just as much because guess what you know it's like disney disney wrote and and drew what he wanted and guess what the world loved and came to his door yes it's true now yeah there are certain challenges to all of this it is it is it is difficult to enter the marketplace it is difficult to get reviewed but it's not impossible and that's the thing you got to keep in mind. You know, to, today this is uh, this is uh, uh, I believe it's December seven, December eight of two thousand nineteen, somewhere in there. And I launched this game February eleventh of this year. So I've gone from total obscurity to talking to you here on this podcast. And I'm not trying to puff my chest out or anything here, but for all the skeptics out there, I just want to say that this is proof that if you apply yourself, you can climb the mountain. And and again, with reviews, for everybody listening out there, please write reviews for folks you buy products from, because like Amazon, it takes 50 reviews for Amazon to share things that are on Amazon. Until they get that 50th review, Amazon does not freely share their information. So definitely review things that you play and love. Okay, so is there anyone you'd like to do a shout-out for? Here in the Anchorage area, I would like to mention Bosco's Cards and Comics. These guys are a staple. They have, they're an institution, actually. They have been around since the, the mid-1960s, and they may not know my name yet, but they're going to get to know me in the future. And if you're here in the Anchorage area, that is the place to go. They have the best collection of vintage comics I've seen anywhere. And definitely make sure you support your local game stores because they are the hub of your, your local gaming community. So, so, Justin, one last question. Absolutely. If you were a survivor in After Collapse, where is it that you as a survivor would want to end up? What part of the world? Uh, quite possibly uh, Pacific Northwest because there's enough uh, – there's enough fresh water. There's enough arable land that uh, to be simple about it, there, there there's enough wild food that uh, if you don't care about what you eat, you'll never starve. <laughs> Living here in Alaska the way I do, uh, we this is this is an Arctic environment. We are basically living on a giant block of frozen spinach. <laughs> and so when it comes to the sort of food you can just go out into the wild and find uh, during the winter you're out of luck during the summer it's it's very haphazard there are parts of the interior near the city of Fairbanks where you will find thousands upon thousands of acres of blueberries and that's fantastic while you while, while you can get them but by the end of the season, you're 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 kind of stuck. Now, if you have uh, if you have the skill and you have the eyesight, you'll have no shortage of moose and caribou to hunt. But uh, I have shot a moose before, e even despite my my limited eyesight. So I know how challenging it can be. But in the Pacific Northwest, there's enough fruits, there's enough berries, there's enough fern tubers and whatnot that if you just go look for it, you'll always be able to find more than you could eat. So that that would be my choice. That's a good pick down here in the desert. I hear you. It's all about the go to where the biodiversity is and water. <laughs> 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. So definitely thank you for coming on the podcast. And by all means, you are welcome to come back whenever you would like if you want to. <laughs> Uh, I, I'd like to talk to you about that in the future. We have got uh, we, we we can talk about game design. We can talk about any of the books. If you're doing any show that has a post-apocalyptic theme or 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 anything else. Oh, definitely. Because because I, I if you haven't couldn't tell, I'm a fan of the apocalyptic uh, RPGs and things. And like when you brought up Gamma World, I've had every edition of Gamma World, including the bad one that that Wizards of the Coast made at the very uh, end. It ooh, was, yes. it's a beer and pretzels version of the game, but it did not deserve the Gamma World label on it. But yeah, I will definitely want to talk more apocalyptic chit-chat with you. Thank you for listening to the Creative Play and Podcast Network. And feel free to enjoy our other shows, such as D&D Journey of the Fifth Edition and Scion Ragnarok and Roll, a Scion hero to Ragnarok story. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Eric. And Wendy Strzok with Stone Valley Hobby and Games. We sell board games, card games, role-playing games, and supplies. We have thousands of Magic the Gathering cards available, carry Kickstarter products, and work with veteran-owned small businesses to bring you our own line of products. We are a small business retailer, but we offer competitive prices, a loyalty system, and free shipping on orders over $100. As a military veteran myself, I'm a strong supporter of our armed forces, their families, and contractors out there doing the hard job. So any order from an AA, AE, or EP address will be shipped absolutely free. Remember, StoneValleyGames.com. Well, we take your leisure seriously.